Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And Father, we thank you for your just blessed word that is alive and powerful and like that sharp two-edged sword divides between what is soulish and spiritual in our lives, that it judges even the thoughts and intents of our heart. And we thank you that it's always profitable, Lord, that the entrance of your word gives light. And so we pray it would do that this morning as we open up your word in an act of worship unto you, even as we sang and prayed and done other things. We pray that this would be an act of worship, that we might have an ear to hear. And Lord, help us to listen expectantly and with a sense of anticipation that you have something to say to each one of us. Bless your word and speak to us through the power and the person of your Spirit's ministry. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's a wonderful experience to embrace maybe some opportunity or perhaps to take a new position vocationally or in some organization and only then afterward to discover the incredible maybe benefit package that actually comes along with embracing that position or opportunity that you had no idea before you embrace it actually was also a part of the package. And I think nowhere that is probably more true than in relation to experiencing the salvation that God offers through his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, I know when I first got saved, I was ecstatic about the reality that God loved me as much as he did and, and my sins were forgiven and to know that the guilt that weighed upon me was taken out of my life and that I was going to go to heaven. But I had absolutely no idea the extent of the benefit package of all that comes along with submitting your heart to Jesus Christ and coming into right relationship with God that the word of God ultimately would reveal as I studied it more. And our text this morning addresses some of these benefits or you could say some of the results of experiencing God's salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, if you were to maybe almost title this portion of scripture, it would be a very fitting title to call it really benefits of justification. The results or the benefits of justification. Now remember, the last four chapters that we've gone through, Paul has extensively explained how we are all guilty that we're all sinful, there's no difference, we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God, but yet God in his gracious love for us has made a way to resolve that problematic situation 
in each and every one of our lives so that we can have our sins forgiven, so that we can have the assurance that we will go to heaven after we die and depart from this earth. And he has done all of that through his son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth as the mediator between God and man. And Jesus came to this earth, lived in the body of a man just like you and I, being fully God and fully man, in touch with divinity, but able to be in touch with humanity. He lived that sinless, perfect life that I don't live, that you don't live, that no one can live. And then, after living the sinless, perfect life, he then became the sacrifice for the punishment for our sin that we deserve. And ultimately rose from the dead and now is able to offer us freely as a gift of the grace of God, forgiveness and salvation and the hope of eternal life if we put our faith and trust in him as Savior and Lord. And if we believe upon what Christ has done, the Bible has been teaching us in these last four chapters here that we can be justified by faith. And the idea, again, we've talked about to be justified by faith means that God declares a guilty sinner, which we are. It's not that we're not guilty. God declares a guilty sinner to be forgiven to be righteous in his sight, just as if I'd, in a sense, never sinned. God wipes out my debt of sin. He imputes the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, into our bank account simply by one thing, our faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Not by any effort, by any work, by any obtainment, by the finished work of Christ, we are justified by faith positionally in God's sight and made righteous. And now Paul wants to talk about some of the benefits, as if that wasn't enough. He wants to talk about some of the added results and benefits of being justified by faith. So here we have now some of the blessed privileges that go along with that. Notice our text again, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, again, he's just talked a great deal about being justified by faith. Therefore, having been, should take note of that, having been justified by faith. So notice, Paul speaks, before we talk about the benefits, of the believer's justification in the past sense as a completed work, having been already. It's something that's already happened, having been justified by faith. In other words, it happened the day of your conversion, the moment of your salvation when as a guilty sinner you realize your condition, you recognize that you're ready to repent of your sin and you were willing to believe upon Jesus Christ and ask him to save you from your condition, and submit to him as Lord, that at that very moment, justification was done. It was a finished work. It was a judicial declaration by creator God where he said, you are forgiven. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It is sealed. And in a sense, you have now been forgiven and made right with God. And it's a finished judicial position. In other words, please understand, because unbelievers many times don't grasp this concept and sometimes Christians in their naivety fail to realize that to be a Christian genuinely biblically means that we're not trying to eventually get right with God that's not the issue we're not trying to get right with God by rubbing some religion on ourselves. So maybe if I start sitting in church services more frequently or read the Bible more periodically than I used to or, or I pray a little more diligently, eventually I'll kind of get right with God. No, 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 no. The Bible says if you're saved, you are right with God. 
You got right with God the day you were saved. You were forgiven, declared righteous, and your eternal destiny was changed. So it's not the religious efforts. We're not endeavoring to keep on proper terms with God and make sure that as long as we maintain a proper you know, sense of, of obligation to God, that eventually then, okay, I hope I'll get into heaven. As long as I can say just a little above the curve spiritually or religiously. And some people have that idea. That's an exhausting place to be. Listen, our faith in Christ says we've been justified. It's a finished work. It's something that God in his love says, I want you to be liberated and to rest to know that you don't have to continually strive anymore. You can rest regarding the condition of your soul. Remember that great hymn, It is well with my soul. That's the understanding that God wants us to have, and that is the true biblical perspective. It's from that position of knowing I'm righteous that then I, from a restful, liberated, in a sense, comfortable place in my walk with God, can then just live out my relationship with the Lord. I believe this is what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30, regarding resting in our spiritual position. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, Come unto me... All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find, here's the key, rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Please take note, Jesus wasn't talking about physical exhaustion. As if he was saying, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. The context of Jesus' words there were not, if you're really exhausted because you've been putting in a lot of overtime and you're really tired and you need some rest, come to me and I'll give you a good nap. That's not what he's talking about. He says, rest for your soul. Because I'll tell you something, to be physically exhausted is one thing, but to be exhausted at times inwardly, mentally, emotionally, spiritually exhausted, our world is exhausted. But they're not necessarily exhausted physically, though in America we're great in regards to that, the way that we live our lives many times, the rat race. People are exhausted internally because they're exhausted with fighting the battle of trying to feel like something is finally right in here. Because there's the constant agitation of guilt and restlessness that, I don't know, am I right with God? Am I right with God? Am I right? And there's an exhausting experience. And Jesus says, listen. You don't have to live under the exhaustion of feeling like you have to maintain religious obligations like the Pharisees were trying to put on the people. Well, if you do this and you do that and and the weight of guilt that people carry around until they eventually come to Jesus and he says, listen, let me take a load off of you. There's nothing more wonderful to be at rest in your soul because you know Jesus and you finally understand you can be at peace within and have that internal rest no matter what's going on in your life experientially. Well, notice, having been justified by faith, that's a past thing. It's been settled. God wants us to know that. Having been justified by faith, if that weren't great enough, the Bible now wants to reveal to us some additional spiritual benefits that actually go along with that results that accompany being justified by faith. The first one he mentions here is in the remainder of verse 1. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, notice, number one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, if you're a note taker, the first benefit or result of justification by faith, very simply, the text states it, is now we have peace with God. 
We have peace with God. The word peace refers to absence of conflict or harmony between two parties. And it speaks of where we stand with God on a relational sense as our creator and as our ultimate judge. At one time, please understand, at one time there was friction. There was conflict, there was tension and separation between us and God, but as the result of salvation, you've been reconciled to God. And God has now brought you to a place through His Son, Jesus Christ, where there has been resolution. That, that tension has been resolved. That friction has been removed. And we'll see next week as he speaks about reconciliation that we've been brought into a harmonious relationship with God and the spiritual conflict that was once there in our life, it no longer exists anymore. It's been, it's been taken care of through Jesus Christ. Now, I think when you look at a section like this, it's important to consider because the truth of the matter is perhaps you never knew things were bad between you and God before. You know, some people live life unconscious of that reality and think, look, I'm on great terms with God. I don't bother with him. He don't bother with me. I'm on great terms with God. And almost like the, the person who's driving down the road, and I hope this is theoretical and never been one of us, but you're driving down the road and a police officer behind you lights you up and you keep driving the next 50 miles down the road, never seeing that he's lit you up trying to pull you over. So then he calls in six more squadron cars, then eventually the helicopter and, and forever. Something's wrong here. You don't realize you're on bad terms with the authority in your life, but they know that you're on bad terms. And sometimes people are like that with God. They're, they're just completely clueless. I'm, I'm fine with God. I, I, I didn't know. When the Bible teaches something completely opposite, the Bible says the truth of the matter is all of humanity naturally is not right with God. We are born sinful. We, by nature, the Bible teaches, start out life separated from God. That's the truth about our lives. That's why we're inclined to do what's wrong, not inclined to do what's right. It's hard to do what's right. It's easy to be manically drawn towards what's wrong because we are sinful by nature. We're automatically separated from God from birth. We have to be reconciled at some point to come into peace with God, and that's not the case until we experience salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, until we are made at peace with God. In fact, that condition only deteriorates as we ignore God in life and sin against him, so much so that though it may be a thing that's hard to swallow, the Bible says that we aren't just out of fellowship with God, the Bible teaches we're actually enemies. That's a strong word. Enemies of God. Just glance down in chapter 5 there, verse 10. Look what it says. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. That's a strong term. That our ignoring God, our sinful actions and choices, which we're all guilty of, actually makes us an enemy of God. That's our true condition before we make peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But let me remind you of this. It's from that condition that God in his love as one who's living like an enemy to God, came and pursued you. It's from that condition God in his love sent to resolve that situation of humanity not being at peace with God. Think about it. God supplied the peace terms. God provided the peace terms. That was the death 
and the sacrificial blood of his son Jesus Christ. A loving father in heaven paid a great price by sacrificing his own begotten son to die on behalf of his enemies. Jesus, in a sense, therefore becomes the ambassador of the peace resolution. Notice, we have peace with God, it says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the ambassador of peace. He's the mediator. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 and 6, that there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Again, mediation to become at peace with God does not happen through a religious figure. It doesn't happen through religious efforts. It happens through the Son of God, the Savior of the world, one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the Son of God who became flesh and lived as a man to be in touch with divinity and humanity at the same time. That is, in a sense, the only one who can be an ambassador for this peace resolution in our soul. That's why Jesus declared very narrow-mindedly, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was very close-minded, but he was accurate. He was true. There's only one way, and that way, thankfully, that there's been a way is through his son, Jesus Christ. He's able to save all those who come to God through him, the Bible says. And the peace terms are presented, and what's our responsibility? To wave the little white flag of surrender (laughs) and to say, okay, thank you for the terms. Thank you the terms are written in blood. Thank you it's not my blood. Thank you it's the shed blood of your son, Father. And thank you, Jesus, for ushering me into the presence of God so that reconciliation can be made. And I, by faith, I wave the white flag of surrender. I am wrong. You are right. Can I please have peace with you, God? And that is how God, therefore, allows us to become at peace with him judicially. That relationship and position is established. Now, that means a few things, both for the believer and the unbeliever. The fact that we are at peace with God for the believer means this, and please hear me this morning as a Christian. The battle with God is over. It's over. God's not angry at you. God is not holding animosity towards you, despite what we think and feel at times, right? You know how that is. You have a bad week or a bad day or, you know, a tough season. You're thinking, oh man, the Lord, he just must have so much agita towards me right now and there's animosity certainly because I've just been blowing and I said this or I thought that or I fell back into this listen no the Bible says you are at peace with God now I'm not saying I'm condoning sin Paul's going to address that when we get to chapter 6 stick around for another week or two but God's not angry at you there's not animosity and agita that God feels towards you in some ways where he's got hostility towards you. No, the Bible says experientially we're at peace with God because of the sufficiency of the peace treaty of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We are at peace with God. It's not performance-based where things are always changing and we're always at risk of judgment if we just step out of line one time. That's not what the Bible teaches. God loves us. We are at peace with God. And because of that, secondly, as a Christian, I should deeply appreciate Jesus Christ. I should be compelled to want to honor him and love him because he's the one who ushered me into this peace relationship with the Father in heaven. And though the battles with God are over, just in case this is necessary to be stated, though it seems obvious, though the battle with God is over, there are other conflicts and battles that we're still going to face. As a direct result, 
of coming into peace with God. There's going to be a battle still with the flesh, your sinful nature. The Bible is going to talk about that in the next few chapters in Romans. There's going to be a battle still where the devil, the adversary from the kingdom of darkness, who's not happy that you've transferred over to the kingdom of the light of the Son of God and of his love, that's going to war against you, the world. There are going to be battles with this world that's anti-Christian in its attitude and spirit. So the battle with God is over, but there are still going to be battles that we're going to face, and we have to be conscious of that. Now, to the unbeliever, this issue of being made at peace with God, I think, puts forth a few things. First of all, it's essential for the unbeliever to realize their true condition. To understand that, honestly, it's usually an eye-opener to most unbelievers who haven't yet accepted Jesus to realize you're actually worse than you envision. What do you mean I'm an enemy of God? Yeah, you're an enemy of God. That would not be a good condition to keep living in much longer or certainly to die in. The Bible says that you're actually God's enemy. Until you're for him, you are against him. I don't mean that offensively. I state that honestly. You can only be for him or against him. Your condition is much worse than you realize, and the fact that you're not at peace with God is why there's always a nagging emptiness in your life. The unconverted soul doesn't realize, why am I always still struggling with a sense of emptiness? I can tell you why, because you're not at peace with God yet. That becomes resolved when you become at peace with God and things change within. And the way to make peace with God, if you haven't noticed it yet, it's right there in the text, is through our Lord Jesus Christ. You must submit to Jesus, come to Jesus, embrace him as Lord and Savior, and you'll find that things will change tremendously within your spiritual condition and soul. Well, he goes on, verse 2, to speak of another benefit. He says, through whom also we have access by faith, into this grace in which we stand. So here's a second benefit or result of being justified. Again, it's clear in the text. The second benefit is we have access to God. So not only are we at peace with God, but we also have access to God. And that word access means we can approach God, come directly to him at any time for anything that we have audience with God and are welcome in the presence of Almighty God to have audience with Him freely and confidently at any time. Now the picture that's being portrayed here is observing protocol in coming before a powerful king. Now, if you were to come before, let's say, some king's throne, you were to approach the throne of a king, you can't just barge in to a king's throne whenever you want and however you want. There's a protocol that has to be observed because of who that ruler is, because of their authority, because of their greatness, because they have a throne. There's a protocol. Maybe you have to come at a set time or maybe you have to come uh, dressed in a certain way with certain attire. Maybe you have to come in a specified way, but there's a protocol that must be observed to have access to enjoy that privilege. Now, if that is true, there's a protocol to get an appointment at the dentist office. There's a protocol to get access and audience with a great king on this earth. How much more is that going to be a reality to have audience and access to the king of kings? 
to the Lord of Lords, to be able to approach and have access to God. Listen, God is awesome. But yet, the amazing thing is he's made himself accessible through proper protocol. Do you want the protocol in one word? Jesus. Jesus is our protocol. Not religiosity or efforts or showing God how... Jesus is our protocol. It's through having relationship with Jesus Christ that we gain access through that relationship to have access to God and to be able to approach him and have audience with him. He first introduces us to God so that we can be reconciled and made at peace with God. That's what he does initially. But then it's through ongoing commitment and relationship with Jesus that we have constant access and continual audience with the Father in heaven because of a relational experience that we have with his son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him, Jesus, we have access by one spirit to the Father. Ephesians 3.11 and 12 says, According to the eternal purpose which God accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence. See, the reason, and notice from our text here in verse 2, the reason for this access through union with Jesus is it says in verse 2 here that we now have, look at the terms, a standing in grace. We now have a standing in grace as the result of our relationship with Jesus Christ. That idea of a standing in grace means that we are in a favored position. We're not always trying to maintain good graces with God through observances and efforts and rule keeping and following philosophies and rituals and ordinances whereby we're always kind of striving to impress God to, to stay on good terms with him or, or maybe to, to kind of win him over. You know, sometimes people think, well, I got to kind of win God over. And if I'm really good or I do this or I give that or I don't do this, then I kind of win God over. And it's almost like we have this mindset that God's got like his little chart on his heavenly refrigerator and he's putting golden stars on it. And once you eventually get enough kind of good grace points, then you earn a little, a little God time. You earn a little God access. Or it's like, listen, God's not a genie. You don't rub a genie and get what you, God's not a genie. And he's not, a, he's not a, uh, an, an employer, a boss, that if you impress him, he gives you the promotion or maybe a special perk. God's a father. He's a father. And he deals in loving and relational terms. We have a standing in grace because of Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. We have a, listen, a fixed position of always being in good favor with God. You have a standing in grace. You are standing up to your eyeballs in the grace of God when he looks upon your life and you have a position of divine favor with God because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I can illustrate this in my own mind and perhaps it's a faint illustration, but as a father, I would not naturally just let any young man who's a total stranger just have free access to come into my home and family whenever they please. They're a stranger. However, if some young man at some point, and please don't get any ideas, would ultimately 
enter into a formal love relationship with one of my daughters in marriage and ultimately then as a result of a marriage have a relationship in that sense. They then become a son-in-law. Something's more formal. There's a a relationship that's been engaged and now they're a son-in-law. Well, that changes everything, right? Now all of a sudden they're a family member. They're a son-in-law. And because of that, I'm going to be favorably disposed towards them. And I'm probably not going to pull the shotgun, you know, when they come walking down my driveway or whatever. I'm going to, hey, come on in, son. You know, and, and can I, is there something going on? Can I help in some way? And it changes the whole dynamic. What does? The relationship with my child. The relationship with my child that's been established is what puts them in a place of divine favor. They have a new standing. Well, I think that's a faint illustration, certainly, but it's a picture and an illustration of what happens with us and God the Father. When we are married to his son, Jesus Christ, relationally, that gives us a standing in grace. So we're now family now. We're children of God. And because of that, the door is always open. We have access to come and God's inclined to help us. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The idea is I can confidently approach God because of my position because of the relationship I've established with his son, Jesus Christ. And because of that, it's because of my position that I have a standing in grace. And it's not dependent upon my performance. This idea of having a standing in grace is such a wonderful thing because it means that there is constant access. And notice that access, the Bible says, is experienced by faith. We have access by faith, it says, into this grace in which we stand. I emphasize, circle in your mind or in your Bible, the word faith, because listen, it's not by feelings. I don't always feel like everything is right between me and God. There are times I pray and I feel like my prayers, some people say they bounce off the ceiling and come back. Sometimes I feel like mine don't even get six inches beyond my lips. I feel like there's times where I pray and it just kind of like falls out of my mouth and just runs right on the floor. I don't always feel like everything's right between me and God, but it's not about how you feel. My feelings, your feelings, many times they are not an accurate testimony to what is true. This is what is true. Let God be true, every man, even you and I in our personal struggles, be a liar. By faith, believing I have access with God because such things are true, because of the relationship that has been fixed, the position that I have by His grace and what He's done for me. I have continual access. You have constant freedom to come directly into the presence of God. And please understand, we study Wednesdays from the Old Testament. That was an amazing reality to the Jew, to come right into God's presence, directly into His presence, yes. And because we come by faith and what he has done for us, that means this. When you're good, you can come right into the presence of God. And when you're bad and you've blown it, you can still come right into the presence of God and tell him how bad you've been and tell him how you've been blowing it and ask him to help you to stop blowing it because we have this freedom afforded to us because of our relationship with Christ. And no matter where we are, what's going on, that access is freely available. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to reacquire it when you mess up once in a while. There's a sign on the office of God's door, if you would, that says to believers in Christ, open 24 hours. 24 hours. And the Bible tells us it's by faith that we must believe this 
and participate in this. And as I look at this reality of access to God, I have to say this in my own omission. And I have to say this as something that I think we should try and be sensitive to as a church and a group of believers. How sad, how sad that we have such access to God and we don't value it or utilize it anywhere near as much as we ought to. We have such access that is incredible access. Hey, we think we're pretty good. Oh, I know this person. So I know this person. So because I know this person, listen, everybody functions like, because I know him and let me get to know this person. Because if I get to know this person, they're my in. Listen, you know God. You know God. Are you having a problem? You can go to God about it. Is there something impossible? You can go to God and tell God. And he actually isn't going to just blow you off. He actually cares. He's going to actually listen. And he actually has the power to do something about it. And like we saw last week, he has the power to perform whatever it is that he promises. What an incredible thing. It's an amazing concept to think about. This is a very sad testimony. How much as Christians, and I don't say this is an accusatory thing towards our church because I've been a part of many churches as you have, the relativity is, is constant among believers, but it's amazing. We love a good sermon. We love a Christian concert, but we have very interest, little interest in things like prayer meetings. What are prayer meetings? Utilizing access to God. Then we say, oh, the church is so anemic. It's so hypocritical. Everybody's in sin. Nobody's getting saved. But I wonder whose fault that might be. I don't know. You know, I don't have unlimited resources and I don't have unlimited power. But when my kids come and ask me for something, or my wife, my bride asks me for something, I'm very inclined to do what I got to do to try and make it happen. And I'm an imperfect, evil human father and a sinful husband. We can go directly to God. We have access to talk to God, to look to God regarding things, to go to Him for mercy, grace, help in time of need. What an incredible thing that may the Lord help us to value and access and utilize more frequently in our lives. The third benefit he mentions in verse 2 as well is it says, notice that the third benefit there is that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now here the third benefit I think simply stated is this, is a believer can joyfully anticipate entering into the presence of God ultimately. Yes, we have access to God now spiritually. If you understand my terms, we can pray, we can seek Him, we can sit in His presence. But the believer can joyfully anticipate entering into the presence of God ultimately. In the fullest sense, he says, we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word hope biblically means an absolute expectation of coming good. It's an anticipation with confidence. And he says, we can anticipate the glory of God. Now there, that term glory of God is a reference to the presence of God where we experience all of his glory. Like the Psalms say, he's the king of glory. What he's referring to here in this text is the blessed assurance of knowing as a Christian that one day we're going to depart from this world of corruption and all of its struggles and its sin and its suffering and that one day we can rejoice in the reality that we are going to get out of this. And that we're going to shed the body that we struggle with and the sin that goes along with it and the frustrations and the satanic opposition and we are going to be in the glory of God. 
And the Bible says that one of the great benefits that we have as a Christian is that one day we're going to enter into this glorious realm where God dwells and all of his glory is where there's the absence of sickness and suffering and strife and struggles and all the things that go along with this world. And we're going to see the king of glory face to face. And nothing's going to matter anymore. And all the struggles are going to be gone. And he says this is something as a Christian that you don't have to worry about. You don't have to hope will maybe happen. You have a confident assurance of that. That your eternal destiny has been changed. And it's something, he says as a Christian, that we can notice the text there, big word, rejoice in. That's something that you and I can rejoice in and be thankful about. That there's this blessed benefit that though I have to endure difficulties in this life, though you walk through struggles, I also know what lay beyond this world. And I know that I'm destined for that and nothing and no one can change that. And to have that blessed assurance, I can rejoice that as I navigate through my life, I can celebrate in worship and thankfulness and gratitude privately or publicly with God's people that though I'm going through this or we're facing that, hey, I can rejoice because one day I'm going to enter the glory of God. One day that's going to be my experience. And can I say this is why it's a benefit? Because the unbeliever doesn't have that privilege. They don't have that benefit. They go through the same cancer and the same divorces and the same struggles and financial issues and, and everyday strife and difficulty. And that's what makes life for the unbeliever all the more difficult and many times unbearable. And worse than that, sometimes it's what makes life completely hopeless because all they have is this. And that's horrible. But for you and I as a Christian, the distinctive difference, the benefit is you have this anchor for your soul that even in life's storms, you can joyfully anticipate, hey, you know what? One day I'm going to enter the presence of God and I'm going to get all the benefits that go along with that. And I would say this, and please hear me before we move on. I think that this reality is probably one of the most effective therapies in a person's life to avert the forces of depression and anxiety that plague every human being on this planet. To be able to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Oh, you're depressed. Maybe you need therapy. Maybe you need medicine. Listen, I'm, I'm trying to be critical, but I'll tell you this. The fact that I can go through hard things and face challenges and struggles and worship and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, there's something very therapeutic that drives away depression and helps push away anxiety when it creeps into my life as well at times. It's a blessed benefit that God has given to us. He says, verse 3 and 4, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Here's a fourth benefit of justification, and that is this, is that we can accept life's difficulties as tools being used by God to work in our life. In other words, the difficulties, the struggles, they're not vain. They're not just, oh, life stinks, man. Life's hard, man, and this is all in vain. No, the glory of being a Christian is you can know life's difficulties can become tools that God uses to work in your life in a constructive way. He says we can also glory or notice rejoice the idea is in tribulations. That word tribulations there speaks of, 
a crushing or heavy pressure applied upon something. It's the term that was used for sifting out wheat in that day. They would bring a very heavy instrument down upon the stalk or the husk, and that pressure would separate the worthless husk from what was the quality portion of the grain that would grow and develop. And at times, we don't have to belabor the reality of it, let's be truthful, at times, that's what we feel like we're experiencing. We go through crushing experiences in this life, heavy circumstances. We, we find ourselves at times under great pressure with problems and difficulties and situations that cause painful separation in our lives. Perhaps this morning, that's exactly what your experience is right now or in the recent season. And listen, no one on this planet is immune from that. No one is. Don't misinterpret that it means God's getting you. Nobody's immune from problems or struggles. This is a fallen, sinful world. It's part of the journey, and we don't always understand, and let's not pretend to be more spiritual than we are, why the problems come at times and the pain and the pressures and the difficulties. We don't understand the purpose and the reasons, but it is part of the process of a journey through this world. There are difficulties, there are challenges, there are hardships, but as a believer, you and I don't have to get the wrong perception. The devil will try and lie to you, does he not? When you're going through the problem or the difficulty or you're facing that heavy crushing thing and all of a sudden the devil makes you think, oh, see that, see that, you, why bother? Can I ask you something? Before you were a Christian, did you never have a problem? When I wasn't saved, I had hardships and problems and difficulties too. Do I really think that if I turn my back on God because of problems now, I'm actually going to do better as I walk through the problems of this world? It's just a lie of the devil. The reality, the Bible says, the opposite is true, is Jesus said in John 16:33, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. See, Jesus says this, I'm going to shoot straight with you. Jesus says, let me be very honest. I'm a straight shooter. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have hard, heavy, pressing, crushing, painful, separating, difficult things, even as my followers. In fact, sometimes even because you're my follower, you're going to get a few extra ones because you choose to follow me and you're going against the grain of the world. But he says, but you can be of good cheer. You don't have to fall apart. You don't have to feel like you're losing it. You don't have to say it's hopeless, helpless, whatever. I give up. Jesus says, because I've overcome the world. And with me on your side, you can overcome rather than those things overcoming you. And he says, this is the glory thing. That's why we have this benefit that we can rejoice, he says, in tribulation. Notice he doesn't say rejoice for tribulation. Be careful. God's not weird. He's not saying, he doesn't expect us to go, oh, you know, praise the Lord. I'm so glad the car broke down. Man, I'm just so, I hope one of the appliances breaks this week. It will really just pile it on. I mean, I need some character development. Right? No. He says we don't rejoice for them. We rejoice in the struggles. Not for them. We rejoice in the struggle. Why? Because we can say, though I must endure this, one day this is all going to go away, and I know where I'm going. And though I have to go through this, and it's hard, I know that even this is going to be used by God as a tool in my life 
to help me in some beneficial way. That it's not going to be a worthless experience. He says we can know that God's using that tribulation for a healthy sifting process. Look, to mature us, to make us a more healthy person. He says we know that those things produce perseverance. It produces perseverance. In other words, the idea is to bear up under pressure, that word means. Perseverance means somebody who's able to bear up under pressure and keep going. That's what the term speaks of. It's hupomone in the Greek. It's a term that speaks of being under heavy pressure but not crumbling under it. Being able, the idea is to have stamina, to keep going, to not give up. It helps us develop perseverance when we go through tribulations and God walks us through those things. The idea is we're willing to learn whatever lesson the experience has instead of just wanting relief from the pressure alone. But they're willing to let God do something productive in us. Notice so that like a chain, it then produces character. There's no more valuable asset a human being could have on this planet in many ways than actually developing some character. Isn't that half the problem with all of us before we came to the Lord and the rest of us in this world? Is there's an absence of a lack of character? Well, how's character developed? Well, it's shaped and it's molded. And a lot of times it's, it's through processes of difficulty and pressure and molding. You become a deeper person. You become more morally well-rounded and more mature. And one of the greatest assets you can have is character. And he says these things productively are developing character. So we produce character in those times. And then notice character and perseverance yield ultimately hope. Now, I think that's interesting. The idea is that you become someone who can offer hope and hold out hope to other people. Why? Because you're somebody who's got perseverance. You don't quit on things. And you don't quit on people and quit on relationships. You have stamina to stay it through in the hard hours of life. And you have character to say, you know what, despite what I think or feel or want to do, character says I need to do what's right and have integrity. And so you can hold out hope to other people in the midst of the process. So a great benefit as well is that we know God's using trials even as tools in our life. And lastly, verse 5, he says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Here's a final benefit of justification seen. Is we experienced and we keep on experiencing the love of God personally in our lives notice the holy spirit who's been given to us at the day of salvation the holy spirit was given to you and god moved into your life he actually lives within you the day you open your life up to him he comes in and his spirit dwells within you and there are many ministries the holy spirit helps us with as a christian but one of his purposes one of his roles notice is to pour out the love of god into your heart the idea is to constantly testify to you and to me, especially when I'm going through the tribulations and characters being produced and, and I'm going through times where I've got to persevere. The Holy Spirit is dwelling within you, constantly reminding and testifying you of the truth, which is, listen, no matter what you're going through, God loves you. He loves you. And he's not getting you and he's not trying to hurt and destroy your life. And, and, and he's constantly there pouring out. And the language is in the continuous sense that his love was poured out into our life the day we got saved. And his love continues to be poured out as he testifies within us of this reality and truth. And let me just say, the love of God and experiencing the love of God for the Christian, it's not just some fact that you've heard about. 
Before I was saved, I would hear people say, God, man, God really loves us or God loves you. It was just a fact. But the day that you accept Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God invades your soul, it's not just some theoretical thought. It's an experiential thing that revolutionizes your life. And it changes your soul from the inside out as you experience the love of God in your life. And then the amazing thing is as you continue to navigate your way through this life, there's the Holy Spirit within you and he keeps pouring out reminders to you. Listen, I know what you're thinking or I know what others are saying or maybe no one else loves you, but I still love you. I still love you. And I don't just love you, but because I love you so much, I'm here to care about you and to help you and support you and uphold you. And he says that is something that will never disappoint because it will never change because God's love is constant and God's love is continuous. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks the truth into our lives and testifies to us. Lord, in sometimes what we already knew and needed to be reminded of and other times, Lord, just truths that just liberate our souls and we just pray that your spirit would wash over us with greater understanding of these things that even as we worship now lord we could rejoice in that hope of the glory of god even in this moment and father we pray by your spirit for any who may not have opened their heart to you to receive christ that your spirit would show them of their need and convince them of the value of making a commitment to you you know, before we sing a final song, I want to extend to you an opportunity this morning. If you are here and you've never received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, maybe for the first time you say, I get it. Or maybe you just say, I'm finally ready for it. And if this morning you're here and you're ready to repent of a life of sin and being self-governed and you want to make peace with God, you want to know your sins are forgiven and the assurance of eternal life is yours, and the Bible says, if whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you know you're a sinner, you understand Jesus is the Savior, you can ask him to save you in a simple prayer like this. If you're sincere, God will see your faith and will respond to you. You can just say, dear God, I'm sorry for sinning against you. Have mercy on me, Lord. Please forgive me. Jesus, save me today. Save me from sin and save me from myself. I receive you into my life. Help me to follow you. And take me to heaven when I die. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord.